0: the uh, holidays. I'll be uh, taking a couple Sundays off to kind of rest and prepare for next year. And uh, next week we have uh, Lucas Cooper, Uh, our own Lucas Cooper, who's going to be yep preaching here. And you guys, if you don't know Lucas, he's one of our homegrown boys. He's pastoring a, a wonderful church up in Toronto, Canada, which means he's very cold right now. And so he's really looking forward to coming back. The uh, venues and our other campuses have the choice to have their venue pastor speak or to have Lucas dialed in, and I think many of them are going to choose to hear from their pastor, which is a really precious and good thing. So uh, that's what will happen over there. And then the week after that, we have a Daryl, the first Sunday here in January, which Daryl is our pastor emeritus, which means that it always... Yeah, you can clap at that. I got to tell him you clapped at that which promises to be both biblical and colorful. So you're going to want to come and, and, and hear Daryl. He's wonderful. And then when I get back, I, I've been mentioning to you all that we're going to talk out of the Gospel of John. And you guys know me. I'm fairly methodical. So we, I've been spending a year mapping out the Gospel of John. And, you know, to do justice to John's Gospel, um, it's really going to take about eight series of messages, series of messages, And a total of about two years. It really would. I mean, John's 21 chapters. I could do it in 21 weeks, but then we'd have to entitle the entire thing Glimpses of John. It it really wouldn't do justice to what God has breathed through the Gospel of John. So eight series of messages, about two years. And it hit me the other day that if we try to do all that in two years, I mean, just turbo this thing through, uh, that leaves no margin or room for letting god speak to my spirit on other things that you know he wants us to look at and to say over the next two years so it's already happened this is the third week that we're in this very short introductory series to john we're going to get to that in a minute but i felt led in my spirit after the conflict series and i believe it was led by the holy spirit to uh, spend January and February not moving right to the next section in John, though we're going to get to that uh, it now in the spring, but I want to do a, a series on attitude. Now, now some of you are immediately going, who's bothering you? Nobody's bothering me. That, that's not what this is about. This is about me and where God has me and my spirit see after the conflict series I I was ministered so much through mark chapter 2 and into chapter 3 about how to deal with conflict and how Jesus did and and I've been meditating on Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 since that time you can look it up later it's a passage that talks about the things that we are to think on to dwell on things like purity truth goodness love excellence All these wonderful traits that make up our attitude each moment of each day, and that's where God has me. And it just hit me that, you know, part of developing a good attitude in our lives means, now don't miss this, that we upstream conflict, right? Because if we have a good attitude, if we have a God attitude, the chances of you having conflict are lower, and the chances of how you deal deal with conflict are going to be better. And so I want to spend a few weeks unpacking the traits of Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. We're going to do a series. I think we're simply going to call it Attitude. Then after that, we're going to dive right back into John and we're going to do a 10-week series called I Believe, small I capital B, I Believe. And I think we're going to have an amazing winter and spring here at our church. So I share all that for you high control people that like to know where we're going. For the rest of you, just hang on for the ride. And I think we're going to have an amazing time here at our church. Let's pray as we turn to his word. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you for your truth, for your goodness, for your grace as we're gonna see today, and for Jesus in whom all of that comes. God, thank you for Christmas and for the celebration that we have at this time of year where we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ into this world, the very God of the universe becoming flesh. It's unfathomable in so many ways. But we're grateful for the gift that you have given us. As we uh, talk a bit about that gift now and the grace that follows, I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have revealed to us. And we pray this in Christ's name and we all say together, amen. So as we've hinted around, I get to talk about grace today. Grace is my favorite gift subject. Many of you know that. So it is not hard for me to talk about grace, but it's where the text is taking us. And and if you think about it, it's a fascinating word, grace. And even more fascinating what our 21st century culture has done with it. And think about it. We've made it into a personal name. It's a beautiful name, grace. We call some of our kids grace. We've turned it into a prayer. Whose turn is it to say Grace. Uh, we've turned it into or we use it to describe polite behavioral traits. You know, so-and-so is filled with poise and, say it with me, grace. We even use the word as slang to refer to cutting others' slack. Hey, why don't you show me a little bit of grace? Or or even when I get my mortgage statement, there's such a thing as a grace period. Have you ever noticed that? where they cut you slack that if you send it in a few days late, they're going to give you some grace. This is how we've used this word in 21st century culture. And though these everyday uses are fine in and of themselves, and quite frankly, they're very positive in nature, the fact still remains that when the Bible uses this word grace, get this, it is meant to literally blow us out of the spiritual water. It is one of the most potent, meaningful, powerful words that God could ever have given us because the concept behind it is literally life-changing and eternity-altering. And just about every New Testament writer weaves grace as central to their point. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that grace was always upon the original apostles. Paul begins just about every one of his letters with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews tells us that because of grace, we can now draw close to God any time in prayer. James notes that God gives us more grace when we need it, especially when we're humble. And Peter, who uses this word almost a dozen times, reminds us to set our hope fully on the grace that we have in Christ. And then you got John whose gospel that we're going to be studying over the next few years here at our church. And i got to tell you, he's no exception. He was enamored with this word grace, and even more enamored with the concept behind it. So, as we're just a few days away from Christmas, I want us to lean into this thing called grace today. And to do so, we're going to read just three verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Three verses that I promise you are a game-changer in the way that you and I view God. So let's read them, John chapter one, verses 16 to 18. If you don't have a Bible, your Bible with you, then you can look on the outline in front of you or direct your attention to the monitors. John one, verses 16 to 18. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, following the flow and logic of these three verses here, I want to leave you this morning with three things, three key things that this tells us about grace. So first, notice that it tells us that God's grace is a never-ending reservoir of His goodness and power to you. That's the first thing you need to see in this passage here that his grace is a never-ending, that's the key phraser reservoir of his goodness and power to you. So look again at verse 16, and you'll see what I mean. It says, and from his, meaning Jesus's, fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And I got to tell you, that word fullness here is a very interesting word. In its original Greek form, it only appears once in the Gospel of John, but elsewhere in the New Testament, it's the Greek word pleroma, and it literally means that which fills fully. That which fills fully. It's a word commentators tell us used to describe extent, the extent, or in this case, the fullness of something. Uh, so it used rather mundanely in Mark chapter 6, it describes how the baskets uh, of loaves and fishes, remember when Jesus was feeding the 5,000? And after he got done with the miracle, they gathered all the, the baskets, and, and it says that they were full of fishes and loaves. And that describes the miracle, because they handed out all these fishes and loaves, and they collected them back up, and they were still full, because God tended to give more. Roma, full. You can picture that there, something that's filled, almost brimming over. So as one Bible expert says, this word denotes the totality of something. Whatever it is, it's full. And when you think about it, guys, in light of God and his character, which is being described here in verse 16, this becomes rather mind-blowing to think that there's an aspect of God's character and actions that is absolutely full, brimming over, and that as believers who have now received him, we have now access to this. Well, we would want to know what that is, right? And in the poetical fashion that John is known for, he tells us in a very interesting way. He tells us it's grace. He says, and from his fullness, play Roma, we have all received, all referring to believers who trust in him, grace upon grace. Now, pause in front of that for a minute there. That, that's a very interesting, if not poetic, way of saying it, isn't it? That, 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 that from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Let me blow your mind even more in its most literal and wooden translation. This little phrase, grace upon grace, would probably be best translated grace instead of grace. It's the Greek phrase karin anti-karitas, with karis being the Greek word for grace repeated twice there, and anti being a prepositional word in the Greek that we usually translate instead of. So put together, most woodenly, this would be grace instead of grace, which is a very creative and poetical way of saying this. God's grace is continuous and inexhaustive. When it does seem to run out, he's going to replace it with some more. When grace seems to deplete instead, God's going to give you more grace. It's grace upon grace, grace instead of grace, or as one author says, grace replenishing grace. That's what's being said here, that when God's grace seems to run low in our lives, don't worry, He's on it, because He is full pleroma of this grace, and He's bent on giving it to you. And grace, as we know, is defined technically as unmerited favor. So simply put, grace is the love goodness, movement, and activity of God in your life and mine. And so what it means here in this passage is that when it comes to God's goodness, his favor to you, and then his power, his movement in your life, that God is full of this and he's always bent on giving you more. That's why I say he's a never-ending reservoir, graces of God's power and his goodness to us. This is the nature of and character of God being described here. And I'm telling you guys, this is a game changer. So, so for instance, you've messed up during this season of your life, maybe even a lot, maybe even more than usual. And you're here today, or at one of our campuses or venues, and you're thinking to yourself, man, do I need an extra infusion of God's mercy and forgiveness? You know what verse 16 tells you? Grace upon grace. From His fullness, He's reserved it for you. Or, Or say you're going through a particularly dicey family time right now and you're entering into the holidays and you have to be with family members that stretch your patience anybody ever experienced that And, and so you're kind of worried going into this knowing that you're a Christian knowing that you're a follower of Jesus knowing that the light is shining on you and you're saying how am I gonna have patience in this particular situation you know what verse 16 says to you its grace upon grace God's already written the check for you and his power is upon you. It's his grace. Please see, guys, there is no withholding from God here. That's the entire point of verse 16. That as a follower of him, his grace is upon you. And not in some trite, light-hearted, superficial, oh, isn't that nice sort of way? Which is the way that many of us tend to treat his grace, but no, in a rich, deep where the rubber meets the road, even gritty sort of way, that's his grace. It's wave upon wave when you need it most. When it seems to be lacking, the next wave is right behind it. I love how John Piper, who tends to be rich in his writings, calls it. He calls this future grace. The fact that there's actually some grace reserved for you a few moments into the future, because that's what God is saying here, so that when you catch up to that point in the future and say, oh, I need His grace, it's there waiting for you. Why? Because God is full of this kind of grace. Uh, Maybe this illustration will help. Uh, Let me see a picture here. Give me a click. Anybody know what waterfall this is? Have you been there? Niagara. Niagara. Good. Niagara Falls. I, I come from Cleveland, so we're not too far from Niagara Falls. I've been there at least a dozen times. And Niagara Falls, if you've never been there, is an extremely impressive waterfall. Uh, In fact, they estimate, nobody can know for sure, but our best estimate is that 500,000 tons of water rush over Niagara Falls every minute. Let that sink in. 500,000 tons of water every minute. That is one powerful waterfall, and it's an unstoppable force, and it's a beautiful thing to see. However, on March 29th, 1848... March 29th, 1848, it's documented in numerous newspaper accounts. Something happened that nobody ever thought would happen. The water stopped going over Niagara Falls. The people living at that time woke up to eerie silence, and when they looked out, there wasn't one drop of water going over Niagara Falls. Uh, some of the religious people thought it was the end of the world. They thought that this was kind of the second coming, the rapture, that, that it was that you know, powerful of a thing. But what they realized, because it went on for 30 hours where the faucet was turned off on Niagara Falls, is that what had happened is is that strong winds had taken much of the ice flow along Lake Erie and it completely blocked the water going into the Niagara River, which leads through Buffalo into the Niagara Falls. And, and, And so it doesn't happen very often. In fact, they've never seen it happen since that it's completely been shut off. But in 1848, Niagara Falls was completely stopped for about 30 hours. You see, here's why I tell you that story. Uh, Many of us would tend to equate God's grace with Niagara Falls. That when we read verse 16 here and we read that His grace is an unstoppable force, that His His grace is always upon us, that it's grace upon grace, you would tend to think of a a powerful waterfall in which water is constantly rushing over it. And when you think you're going to run out, there's more water coming. But, But tell me if this isn't true. Some of us also tend to think that like Niagara Falls, maybe, just maybe, there could be something that would stop it. That maybe once every 150 years, there could be a situation in my life or a situation in my circumstances that would block the flow of God's grace in my life. And this is where the analogy breaks down. Because what verse 16 is saying to you is that's not going to happen. As we're going to see in a minute here, you can choose not to experience His grace if you want to, just as you can choose to never go visit Niagara Falls but the water is still flowing. Amen? Let's take another run at that. But the water is still flowing. Amen? Amen. And that's what verse 16 is saying, and that's the first thing that you need to understand here. Whether you're new to this or not, you need to honor the fact that God's grace is something that He is full of and that His posture toward you is grace upon grace. Now, once we've established his never-ending reservoir of grace to those of us who have received him we are ready for the second truism about his grace, made clear in the next verse of John chapter 1 here, and here it is, and that is that God's grace comes to you primarily in and through Jesus. I I tell you, this is a really, really powerful and tender point. I was a when I got home preaching last night, I, uh, I, I came home and I was watching the football game uh, on my back porch and, and having dinner. And uh, when there would be a, a commercial break at the football game, I'd switch to the religious channel. I, I kind of do that a lot. And, and there was a preacher on the religious channel that, that I'm not going to say who, because you'll hear why in a minute, but he actually was a good preacher and, and uh, comes from a long line of preachers, and uh, he was preaching on God's love and His grace. And actually, much of what he said, because I kept flipping back to him, especially when the commercial from the football game was on, I, 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 I liked a lot of what he was saying. I mean, it was, it was biblically cogent. He talked a lot about God's love and God's grace, and he unpacked a lot of what that might mean. But as I got to the end of hearing him preach, there was one noticeable thing absent, and that's that at least in this Christmas message, he never once, never once, tied God's grace to Jesus. It was all about God's grace, God's love, this and that, and I remember getting to the end of it and thinking, wow, at least from John's vantage point, um, we've missed something significant here. Now look at verse 17, and you'll see what I mean. This is very core to what God is breathing through the Apostle John. He says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, now the reason that this is such an important statement here is because rarely will you find the Bible contrasting two godly people like Moses and Jesus. They compare them a lot. But rarely would the Bible ever contrast something like this. So what is it saying? Here's what most Bible scholars would land on, and let's try to understand this. When you look at the Old Testament, it is filled with hundreds of laws. In fact, the Ten Commandments, as many of you know, are found in the Old Testament, and those enough are a very high lofty standard for humanity to live. In fact, if you and I were sitting down today over a cup of coffee and I pulled out the Ten Commandments, you'd start to sweat. And the reason I know you start to sweat is that I'd say, uh, you know, let's check this off here. Have you ever murdered anybody? And, and you'd probably say no, though. Some of you, I don't know. You'd probably say no. And then I'd say, have you ever committed adultery? And many of you would say no. Some of you might say yes. And, and, and by the way, th- then I'd say, yeah, those are the easy ones. So ha- have, you ever, have you ever stolen anything? Well, nobody's perfect. Uh, you know, have you, ever, have you ever used the name of the Lord in vain? You know, have you ever used the name of God in a non-worshipful context? How about the number 10? Have you ever coveted your neighbor's oxen, which today means BMW? Have you ever done anything (laughs) like that? You ever walk by your neighbor's house and go, man, I wish I had that? See, the the problem is just just the Ten Commandments makes us realize that we what? Fall short. The law was given through Moses. And what the law does in being a perfect expression of God and his character, now don't miss this, is it makes us realize that we fall short. All of humanity experiences that. It's a lofty moral standard that is indicative of God's character. And the whole Old Testament is one huge journey of people falling short, why? To set up the coming of Jesus into this world. Because the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus came, that Jesus would be the fulfillment of the law What the law was unable to do in us because we fell short, Jesus came, and as the perfect one, as God come in the flesh, he lived a sinless life, living up to all of God's law, went to a cross to die in our stead to bring forgiveness for us falling short from the law, then rose from the dead Easter Sunday to show his victory over death and sin. So don't miss this. What John means here by contrasting Moses and the law with Jesus and his grace is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He came to offer grace and forgiveness which the law revealed that we need and through our inability to keep it. And once you understand this here, this is powerful guys, it answers the question that so many 21st century people ask, why is Jesus the only way? You're saying, well, how does it answer that? The answer is simple. Now, try to dial into this. Just as we all need a set universal moral standard, the law, to show that we aren't perfect, what John is saying here is that likewise, we need a universal Savior given, offered to all, and that that's Jesus. See, think about it. Without a universal moral standard, all morality would be relative. Do we all understand that? And that's part of the problem with our culture today is that when you reject God's standard of morality, or at least distance this morality from coming from Him, then you develop your own culturally entrenched moral standard that by its very nature has to be relative because you can't make anything universal. When that happens, You're setting yourself up to basically declare yourself a pretty good person. And you're saying, how? Well, think about it. If morality by nature is simply man-made and agreed upon convention specific to any individual or particular culture, then you and I here today in our venues and campuses as a group of people could basically say that lying, stealing, and cheating aren't really a part of our moral standard and declare ourselves having not fallen short. Or we could say that lying, cheating, and stealing is not as bad as some might say, and so we really haven't fallen all that short. You see, without a universal transcendent moral code that applies to all of humanity, then anything goes, and no one would ever see themselves as imperfect or fallen because each person or culture would simply make up whatever they want and then call themselves good, which in fact, by the way, many people today do. However, with a universal moral standard like the Ten Commandments, like the things found in the Bible, we all get a chance to realize that we don't measure up to God and his goodness, and then we all realize that we need a savior. That's the way this whole thing's supposed to work. So the law was given through Moses, to reveal our sin and need for a Savior. And this is universal in nature and scope. As the book of Romans say, even those who don't know the Old Testament have the law where? Written upon their hearts. They got a conscience that we're born with in which we do something bad and go, gosh, that's probably not a good thing that I just did. It's the law. It's God's standard working within us. And most people accept this. Even as I rub shoulders with many non-Christians and even skeptics, they, they tend to agree that we all fall short, at the very least, of a universal standard that all cultures seem to at least give credence to. But here's the scandal. Then we hear that God has likewise provided grace and truth in a similar universal revelatory fashion in and through his son Jesus, and then we cry, FOUL! And say well that's narrow-minded and that's non-inclusive and i can't believe christians are like that and all that and people don't realize how inconsistent they're being because i would submit to you that what verse 17 here is saying is that you can't have one without the other you can't have a universal transcendent moral code given by god to all humanity that by the way in the western world here we base our very laws upon things like don't murder don't lie don't cheat don't steal but then cry foul when God provides by His grace a universal offer to all Savior whom He calls us to receive and believe. It's inconsistent to deny one and not the other. And the logic of the good news here then is impeccable. We're all fallen, shown by our inability to live up to any standard that would come from God, but then we're all offered a Savior, the incarnate Jesus who died for us and calls us to follow him. And so this is why we say, maybe now you can see, that grace comes to you in and through Jesus, primarily. I mean, does God give us grace in other ways? Sure, the fact that you're breathing is a sign of his grace. The fact that you're born, the fact that you have a job, it's all about his grace. But if you want to experience it on a personal level, this is why you need to understand Jesus And embrace him in your life. One of the things you guys know we love to do is tell stories around here. We love to tell you stories of what God is doing in the lives of people. Uh, Recently, uh, one of our people had an amazing experience with exactly what we're talking about here today. uh, From going from this law understanding into the grace of Jesus. And I warn you, it's a powerful, powerful story. So let me introduce you to our friend Margot, And we're going to let you tell her her story. Look up here on the screen.
1: I grew up in a Jewish family and I met my first husband in the library of the University of Pennsylvania. After 10 years of a relatively unhappy marriage because my husband was very unfaithful, we got divorced. And I felt like a total failure. And I decided to go to France and. When 9-11 hit, my business went from astronomical to catastrophic. I decided to come back to America where I met my second husband and I thought life was good again and I was just happy to be married and have someone take care of me. Unfortunately, he passed away unexpectedly in 2011. When he died, I was totally lost. I had $12 to my name, and this was the lowest point of my life. And one day, walking my dog on the street corner, someone calls out from a car window, is that a Bedlington Terrier? And I turned around and saw a gentleman, well-dressed in a car, and he introduced himself to me. He said, I'm Trent Whitehead. And he looked at me and he said, I think you need a prayer. And I just burst into tears. (laughs) And we prayed together, and we started emailing back and forth. He and his wonderful wife, Barb, took me to coffee and talked to me about Jesus, and, and he invited me to come to a service here. This whole church is just amazing. Trent introduced me to Kathy Wilson, and she's a, a Jewish believer, and the more I talked and the more I started coming to Scottsdale Bible Church, the more I realized that Jesus was someone I needed in my life, and I have welcomed him into my heart, and I know he will never ever abandon me. I'm Margo Einstein, and this is my story.
0: If you were to ask Margot uh, during her years in life, before she knew anything about the Lord Jesus, you know, is there a moral standard that comes from your Jewish background that you're aware of and that God wants you to live up to, her answer would have been what? Yes. In fact, I've confirmed that with her. So, she got the first part of that very clearly, that the law was given through Moses, that there's a moral standard we need to live up to, and yet in the brokenness of life, in the failure of marriage, in the difficulty of economies, and our own personalities, many of us, Margot included, experience falling short. And sometimes when you fall short, as we all know, things can get extremely, extremely difficult. And it's at those points in life where you tend to reevaluate what is all of this about? And where is all of this going? And aren't you glad that that Trent Whitehead, one of our members and elders, is driving down the road? And, And Trent's more bold than most of you all are. He would be the kind of guy that would stop and say, is that a dog? And how many legs does that dog have? Oh, four. That reminds me of four spiritual laws. And he'd be off to the races. I mean... That is Trent. And he loves people. And, and, and he's just amazing that way. In fact, I, I don't think Trent might be sharing this. There's a, there's a, a guy up in, at the Mayo, at the corner of Mayo and Scottsdale that, you know, asked for money. And, and one day, Trent started a spiritual conversation with that guy at the corner from his car. And, and it continued on to the point where Trent had to drive around six times to finish the conversation. And so that, that's Trent. He's a pretty amazing guy. And, and Trent and Barb loved on, 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 on Margot, and then Kathy Wilson loved on Margot, and they explained to her gently uh, the truth of who Jesus is and, and how the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus. And, and that made sense to Margot. And I was at her baptism recently, and it was a powerful, powerful mo- moment, and her life is now changed. You see, grace really is God's never-ending reservoir to you and me of his power and his goodness. But don't miss this, guys. It's tapped into. It's experienced through Jesus. And though some of us don't like talking about that in polite society because people tend to freak out when you go from God to Jesus, I'm telling you, you do them no favors by trying, if you will, to play it safe. All you're doing is keeping them from understanding who God really is, and experiencing the joy and the peace and the life that he gives us through his son, Jesus Christ. So in our journey of grace here today, we realize that God's grace is truly a never-ending reservoir of his goodness and power to us. We realize that his grace comes to us primarily in and through Jesus, and that's a good thing. It makes sense. And then, as we're wrapping this up, notice a third and profound thing that this passage shares with us, and this brings it all together. And that is that God's grace is designed for you to know Him and to love others. In other words, guys, grace has a purpose. Look at verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, what is this saying? It's probably got Exodus 33, verse 20 in mind. That's the scene where Moses uh, is asking to see the face of the Lord, and what does the Lord say? No one can see my face. <laughs> Nobody can see my face and live. Nobody can see my essential being and live because you guys are mortal. I am not, and you would be so blown away by my holiness that you couldn't take it. That's Exodus 33, verse 20. And John probably has this in mind. And he's saying no one has actually ever seen God in his essential being and holiness. However, the only God, here referring to Jesus who is so incredibly close to the Father, he's right at his side as a second person of the Trinity, he, through his grace, now here's the operative phrase, has made him known. Now don't miss that. That's the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace is so that God might be known, so that you and I can actually know him the best we can this side of heaven so that we don't wonder what he's like, what he's going to do, how he operates in our lives, the purpose of grace is so that on an intimate, personal level, we might know God. That word know there is a fascinating word. I don't want to bore you too much here, but that word know is where we get the English word or the word that we use to describe things here in church, exegesis from. So many of you know, been around church for a while, that we exegete the Scriptures here. We draw out their meaning. That's what that word means. In a very real sense, what this word here means, to know God, or that we get to know God here, means that we get to exegete God. We get to draw out uh, who He is and experiencing Him in all His fullness. And so what I need you not to miss here today, guys, is that the purpose of grace, this purpose of this wave-on-wave grace, is so that you might know him and love others. So God's grace is not necessarily designed to make your life easier and trouble-free. He never promises that. No, it's to allow you to know him and experiencing him in the midst of life's storms and find your sufficiency in him. And then as a strong follow-up to this, we get to pass grace on. Other parts of scriptures talk about that, that those of us who experience the love and grace of God in Christ now get to translate that to those around us. So here's the deal. I've been reading Yancey's new book this uh, winter just for my own soul. His book called Vanishing Grace. And at one point in the book, he makes this statement, and this kind of brought it all together for me. Look up here on the screen. He says, I'm convinced that human beings instinctively seek two things. We long for meaning a sense that our life somehow matters to the world around us, and we long for community, a sense of being loved. Let me ask you, do you agree with that statement or not? I think most of you would. I really do. I think most skeptics, even most non-Christians, would tend to agree with this statement that core to the human experience is a search for meaning, and because we're not islands, a search for at least some sort of community in which we can be loved. And what Yancey simply does in his book here, as you would expect, is that he ties God's grace in Jesus to this aspect of experiencing community with each other, and then vertically experiencing God in a profound way. So it would look like this. Give me another click here. This is the way I pictured it in my mind this week, that it all begins with grace. I mean, it's wave upon wave. It's grace upon grace. Grace is the starting point in Jesus. And grace is to be experienced on two levels. Now, don't miss this. It's to be experienced vertically with God through Jesus Christ, through believing and receiving Him and then walking with Him in grace each day. And when we do that, we experience meaning. We experience the fact that life matters. That even if our circumstances stink, even if things go south in our life, guess what? We still have God. We still matter to Him. We are valued. We are loved. He will never leave us or forsake us. And that is meaningful. That is solid. And so life matters because of God's grace that we experience directly with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. But then horizontally, we translate this grace to each other and we experience community. The kind of community in which hopefully, and I know we don't always live this, and I know many of us have been hurt by this, but the idea is to radically accept each other just as God has radically accepted us. And through experiencing that on a human level, we go, man, I never thought I could be that loved. And now you're experiencing grace. So you experience with God, you translate it to each other, and now grace is written into the DNA of your human experience and your spiritual experience. That's how this is to be lived out. But if you don't start with grace, if you don't make it core to your thinking about God, to your prayers, to the way that you function with God, to the way that you relate to other people, then you will be engaging in what Tony Campolo calls an adventure and missing the point. And many, many, many Christians do that. we got lots of Christians that are good, law-abiding, I've changed my lifestyle, i got my doctrine down kind of Christians. And don't get me wrong, those are good things. I'm into doctrine. (laughs) I think lifestyles should change. I'm into all of that. But listen, guys, if it doesn't flow from grace, if it is not focused on His grace, if it doesn't result in grace then the reality is that stinks. It's just not the plan of God. And I think it's a great challenge to many of us here in the church. One more story, and then we're going to do something really cool to end here. I, uh, back in my early pastor, and I'm ashamed of this now, I really am, um, I went to a conference. That's not what I was ashamed of, but I went to a conference. And at this conference, this, this church leader, Dale will remember this, this church leader Um, introduced me to a phrase that I liked. The phrase was an EGR, which referred to an extra grace required person. He was talking about people we don't like in the church, you know, annoying people or needy people or people that tend to always vie for the pastor's time. And this guy gave a talk and said, you know, there are EGRs in the church, extra grace required people. And as a young pastor, I really latched on to that. And I came back and I introduced that in my church in Detroit. And we all latched on to it. And we started labeling a bunch of people in the church EGRs. So we'd have, I know, isn't it awful? So we'd have these behind-the-scenes meetings. No, it is. We had the -the behind-the-scenes meetings. And we'd say, you know, so-and-so's an EGR and -and so-and-so's an EGR. And I actually once did a whole training at another church to a bunch of pastors on how to recognize and deal with EGRs. I mean, I'm, I'm not proud of this. It was awful. That was about 20 years ago. Sometime around the mid-90s, I was spending some time with the Lord, which hopefully we all do on a regular basis, and I got to tell you, I heard loudly from his spirit, and you know what I heard loudly that he said to me? He he said, Jamie, here's the thing you don't understand. In my eyes, you're an EGR. Yeah. So you can go around labeling all these other people that don't have as many problems as you do EGRs, but in light of me, you are one massive EGR. And aren't you glad, Jamie, because I've given you the extra grace you need. It's wave upon wave. I've given you love and sufficiency that you need, and instead of calling people EGRs, just thank me for it and start seeing yourself that way. And I got to tell you, I repented in that moment. I actually apologized to some people. Some of them wouldn't have got it. But I apologize to some people <laughs> saying, you know what? Forgive me for my attitude towards you. And I started to own the fact that all of us, all of us, and this is a beautiful thing, are EGRs. We're all extra grace required people in the eyes of God. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? I want us to close in in hopefully a meaningful way here today. Um, John Newton, in the 18th century, was a slave trader turned Christian, and he wrote a hymn that has become America's most popular hymn, and what's the name of it? Amazing. Amazing Grace. And I had a vision, not like a John vision, but a vision this week in my mind of how we could end our service here today, here at Shea, and in the venue, and in our chapel, and at Mountain Valley and at Cactus, and even those online, all singing together a cappella with no instruments, just our voices, amazing grace. So why doesn't everybody stand here right now? And at Mountain Valley, please stand. At Cactus, please stand. At Venue, please stand. At Chapel, please stand. I I know it might be weird, but even those of you watching at home, stand, (laughs) if you can. And so uh, we'd like you to, to all stand. And as one congregation, I want us to sing without any instruments, just our voices to God, amazing grace. I've asked Troy, our worship leader here, to lead us because I'm terrified I'd start us off on the wrong note and that would ruin the whole thing. So we're going to have Troy uh, lead us in amazing grace and just sing it to the Lord. Sing it as a testimony of your heart. If you're not there yet, make this a prayer of where you want to be, hopefully. And then as soon as we're done singing four stanzas of this, I'll close us in prayer. Amazing grace
2: how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I was was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see t'was grace that taught my heart to feel and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour i first Yeah. The sun we've no less days, see God's praise. Then, when we first, begun.
0: God, we thank you. For the indescribable, inexhaustible gift of your grace that comes to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we celebrate his coming here at Christmas time, and I pray for all of us that as we wrap up our time here together and enter into the holiday season, into Christmas, that God, there would not be lost on us the profound meaning of this season, and that is to focus our sights on the grace that is ours in Christ. It truly is amazing, and we're grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name, and we all say together, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you Christmas Eve.